My name is Phil Smith and uh, we're at the Brighton ABN meeting and uh, we just heard Ingrid Sheffer, who is from Melbourne, Australia, talking. Uh, she gave the Gordon Holmes lecture for this year and uh, on the gen genetic epilepsy coming of age. So thank welcome Ingrid. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to hear from you what you feel um, the main practical uh, aspects of your talk are, please, in terms for an adult neurologist. Well, I think there are many issues that are pertinent to practice for an adult neurologist. The first one is that molecular genetics is coming into daily practice now, and you can order sequencing of a specific gene, or more commonly now panels, and I think the days of whole exome sequencing in the clinic are not too far away. So from a practical point of view, the neurologist needs to know how to interpret a variant that they may get on a report and to understand if it is pathogenic for their patient's disorder. Now this needs a number of different steps and often you can ask your friendly geneticist for some advice to help guide you as to whether this gene, gene variant that you have is causative. Some of the examples are whether the variant changes the nature of the amino acid in the protein and therefore is likely to alter its structure, whether the variant is present in population databases such as EXAC, which has 60,000 normal people in it, uh, and if it's present there, then it's very unlikely to be pathogenic. If it's inherited or de novo, if it is inherited and the parent is normal, and they have that variant in every cell, again, it is less likely to be the cause of your patient's disorder. If it's found in other people with the same disorder, then that would be very helpful and would help you to consider that it was pathogenic. Um, ideally, you'd like to be able to do uh, functional studies on that variant to see if it alters the function of the protein, either in vitro or in vivo, but in practical terms, that's often not the case. So you put all this together, and I certainly don't do that myself, I do that with my friendly geneticist, and then you try and determine if that's the cause of your patient's disorder. So that's the first thing I'd advise. Okay, so what, what, what are the, the, the syndromes that we're going to see in, in the adult clinic that need the genetic approach to, to the investigation? Well, I think there's a real paradigm shift here. I don't think it's just the rare severe epilepsies such as the epileptic encephalopathies. I think that uh, genetic testing is going to come into the common or garden epilepsies. Now we've always regarded the genetic generalised epilepsies, previously known as idiopathic generalised epilepsies, as largely genetic and they account for a quarter of all epilepsies. But what's very exciting is the role of genetics in focal epilepsies, which account for 60% of all epilepsies. And just recently there have been a number of different genes discovered, such as DEPDC5, uh, NPRL2, NPRL3 and other genes in the mTOR pathway that have been found in uh, patients with both lesional and non-lesional focal epilepsy. We've recently completed a study with Piero Peruca uh, in Melbourne and we looked at 40 um, patients with non-lesional focal epilepsy and one and at least one relative with uh, epilepsy and we've had a 12% hit rate in focal epilepsy suggesting that of those people in your day-to-day -day clinic with focal epilepsy we could today find a gene in 12%. Now that's only a small study but that's about to explode with these large consortia with large numbers of patients 
and I think uh, epilepsy genetics will be part of your workup, just just like you know uh, other things are today, like an MRI scan. Right. Okay. And um, so, if if we have someone with focal epilepsy in a, in a normal MR scan. Um, do, do, do we send a panel or do we, do we send a, a targeted well, genetic approach? I think at the moment this is in evolution. Uh, I don't recommend sequencing one gene at a time. That's very expensive and um, takes a lot of time. So uh, I think we will get panels with all these focal epilepsy genes on them. But in some ways it may be better to have a broad brush approach and look at all the epilepsy genes, which may be 400 or something nowadays, in an exome. And I think it's... The, the cost of the technology is coming down such that an exome may be just as cheap as a panel and then you can interrogate just the genes of interest but then when they're negative, if, as new genes are found or if you want to look at that person uh, from a research perspective, you could go looking for new genes. Right, so, I mean, one of the many things I took from your lecture was that even those with a, with a lesion uh, may have a uh, genetic basis that, that uh, uh, so, so, so in other words, those with genetic epilepsies don't necessarily, uh, are not necessarily excluded from surgery for one thing, but also those with a lesion uh, may be a form of, well, I think of it as a form of tuberous sclerosis, but it, you, you referred to tuberous sclerosis light, I think, in your That's in right. Your talk. So really, I think the whole group of disorders are the mTOR disorders or mTORopathies, of which TS is one and is the best known one, but in fact will probably be much less common than some of these other disorders. And what we found with the DEPDC5 work was that you, it could cause both lesional and non-lesional focal epilepsies within a family. And these focal epilepsies uh, may, uh, the, the lesions rather, may be focal cortical dysplasia and with pathological studies there can be a whole range of different types of focal cortical dysplasia, type 1, 2A and 2B all being reported. But it's a game changer because suddenly your patient with a non-lesional focal epilepsy, if you go back and repeat the imaging and find a subtle uh, bottom of a sulcus focal cortical dysplasia, suddenly this patient is a surgical candidate and you may be able to cure their epilepsy, which is exciting. So what, what are the other ways that knowing the genetic uh, underlying, uh, genetic factors underlying this will change the management? I think we should always remember reproductive counselling. Um, and you may say you've got a normal adult with a frontal lobe epilepsy that this may not prevent them having a child, may not be severe enough uh, for them to consider genetic counselling. But in fact, we know in some of these families, some of the individuals have intellectual dis disability or severe autism spectrum disorder, and therefore they really need genetic counselling and to understand the implications of carrying a gene variant. Yeah. But more than that, in terms of choice of medication that sort of oh thing. yes so medication is critically important and can be determined by a genetic finding so one of the examples I gave yesterday was in the uh, epileptic encephalopathies due to different sodium channel genes and we now know of severe epileptic encephalopathies due to SCN1A, SCN2A and SCN8A and they all encode different alpha subunits of the sodium channel and we know that in SCN1A which is most frequently associated with Dravet syndrome that those patients get worse if you give them carbamazepine and they get more prominent myoclonic seizures. 
On the other hand, there's emerging evidence that both SCN2A encephalopathy and SCN8A encephalopathy do well with sodium channel blockers, and we think that you may need to give them higher levels than is usual for, say, phenytoin or maybe carbamazepine and oxcarbazepine. So uh, getting a gene really determines the way you will approach treatment, and equally importantly, which treatments may make your patient worse. Right, okay. And, uh, and, and so in an adult with intellectual disability, then uh, what approach should we have as adult neurologists, do you feel, to that type of problem? I think it's very common in the adult neurologist clinic to see an adult with intellectual disability and refractory epilepsy. And it's easy in a way not to think about the cause. You've got this person and you're just dealing with seizures on a day-to-day -day basis. But I put it to you that it's absolutely critical to go back and try and find the cause. And there are many reasons. The first is um, it may be that somebody, their parents have been living with guilt all their life. You know, maybe it was that glass of alcohol I had when I was six months pregnant. And if you can show that that adult has an SCM1A mutation, you can say they were always destined to have this disease. Often the clues are in the very early history and you see the adult in your clinic with a carer who's known them for a week or a month if you're lucky and you really can't get an early history and then it behoves the adult neurologist to either ring the parent if they're alive or if not to write to the original hospitals where the child was where the adult was treated as a child and get that early history you'll be surprised how often it'll jump out at you as Dravet syndrome and you'll go I know what this is so the first one reason is to get the cause and we now think in the epileptic encephalopathies where you see this gradual deterioration over time that around 50% can be diagnosed on genetic studies which is really exciting considering we didn't have a clue what the cause was about 15 years ago. It also will then tell you which drugs are more likely to work. It will help you to look at comorbidities that could be associated and have prognostic implications. And you've got to remember that that adult often will have some siblings and for them the genetic counselling might be very important even if the adult themselves is not likely to have a family. Ingrid Schaffer, thank you very much for your wonderful lecture and for talking us to, the, to us. Thank it's you. It's a great pleasure. Thank you.